Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Our guest today is Ray LaHood, former Secretary of Transportation in the Obama administration, the first Republican named by President Obama to serve in the cabinet. Before that, Ray LaHood represented the 18th District of Illinois in the House for seven terms. That district has a unique history. It includes the quintessential American town of Peoria. So if you're wondering if Ray LaHood would play in Peoria, that question has definitely been answered in the affirmative. But the district has also been represented in the House by the great Senator Everett Dirksen, and before that, none other than Abraham Lincoln. I knew Secretary LaHood when he was in the House. He served on several committees, Transportation and Infrastructure, Appropriations, Agriculture, the Intelligence Committee, and occasionally I'd find my old boss, Rahm Emanuel, and Ray talking on the House floor. They were both from Illinois. But I got to know the Secretary better and really work with him when he was at the Transportation Department. What I did not know at the time was that Secretary LaHood had been a staffer for quite a long time. Early in his career, Ray LaHood ran the district office for Congressman Tom Railsback, and later he became chief of staff to legendary House Minority Leader Bob Michael. Both men represented the district that LaHood would later represent. As a member of the House and as a member of President Obama's cabinet, Ray LaHood was a strong and active advocate for bipartisanship. It's in his bones. It's a core value of his. His book, published in 2015, is entitled Seeking Bipartisanship, My Life in Politics. He helped lead a segment of moderate Republican members that looked for issues where they could find common ground with Democrats. He organized retreats where members of both parties could come to discuss policies candidly and try to explore solutions that would work for everyone. Norm Ornstein, the esteemed congressional scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, said, quote, If we had more Ray LaHoods, we would not be so concerned about the deep tribal dysfunction that now characterizes our politics. I was honored to have Secretary LaHood as my guest, and I am so pleased to be able to present our conversation to you. We recorded this episode on Friday, April 30th. I hope you enjoy it. Secretary Ray LaHood, welcome to Staffer. Thank you, Jim. Great to see you and uh, great of you to invite me on on your podcast. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time, so thanks for inviting me. It's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to it also. I did not know when you and I were working together, uh, uh, when I was at the White House and you were uh, Secretary of Transportation, that you had been a staffer. I just didn't know that part of your biography. So I was so excited to learn it and invite you onto the show. Um, I I start uh, with my guests by learning a little bit about where they grew up and how they grew up. So can you tell me about your parents and your family? Sure. I grew up in Peoria, Illinois, Midwestern city, about 140 miles uh, south of uh, Chicago, a very, very Midwestern town, uh, Caterpillar uh, dominant employer, uh, went all through grade school and high school at Catholic schools in Peoria, raised a Catholic, uh, uh, still a faithful Catholic today, in spite of all the things and the controversies that have happened in the church. Uh, uh, went to community college for a couple years when community colleges were just starting in Illinois, came back to Peoria, uh, went to Bradley University, uh, which is in Peoria, uh, liberal arts school, 5,000, majored in uh, teaching, uh, and uh, met my wife at Bradley. Uh, we got married while we were both students. My wife has an MBA from Bradley. I, I just have a bachelor's degree. 
um, and uh, started my career as a, a, a teacher. Uh, taught junior high school for six years, which I love very much. Uh, Kathy persuaded me to get out of teaching because there was no money in it, but uh, uh, we, uh, we we gravitated towards politics by working for two congressmen, one Tom Railsback, who unfortunately has passed away. I worked for him for five and a half years, mostly in Illinois in his district. And then uh, Bob Michael, who uh, you know, well known as the longest serving Republican leader, helped uh, Ronald Reagan get his agenda through and also helped Bill Clinton and, uh, and George Herbert Walker Bush while he was leader. I worked for Bob for 12 years. So I have 17 and a half years as a congressional staffer, which I'm very, very proud of, Jim. Uh, learned a lot, obviously, about politics, about government, about the importance of Congress, but the, but more importantly, about the importance of, of staff and how, you know, staff really drives Capitol Hill. Uh, and, uh, and, and then, uh, you know, I had the good fortune when, when Bob Michael retired, uh, as the Peoria congressman, uh, to get elected in 1994 during the Gingrich Revolution. I was one of three Republicans who did not sign the contract with America. I know. I took, I took my lumps for that, but uh, served 14 years. Uh, I was on the Transportation Committee. I was on in the Intelligence Committee for eight years and uh, got on the Appropriations Committee. Met a fellow by the name of uh, Barack Obama while I was a congressman from central Illinois, and he was our senator for the entire state, and he and I became very good friends. And I also had a very good friend in Rahm Emanuel. Rahm and I um, really became friends uh, during our work in the delegation, worked a lot for Illinois, did a lot of things for Illinois. He was on the Ways and Means Committee. I was on the Appropriations Committee, and, and we, we really collaborated a lot. And, uh, and, and then because of those two wonderful friendships, I ended up Secretary of Transportation, which I've always said is the greatest job I ever had, it, phenomenal job. And uh, four and a half years, I, I'm very thankful to President Obama and to Rahm for giving me that opportunity. Uh, and uh, when I went into that job, Jim, I knew the importance of staff. Staff is so important. Uh, and I knew the importance of it because I was a 17 and a half year experienced Congressional Hill staffer. So uh, that's the, the long and short of it. Uh, uh, no, well- I, I look. I, I have a segment that where I, I like to ask people to nominate um, uh, uh, staffers for you know my my dream of a staffer Hall of Fame that I'd like to build on the National Mall, and you are a Hall of Famer. <laughs> that, <laughs> oh wow! I mean, what are, well, that is an incredible arc. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. for every person running a district office, everyone who's you know running a congressional office or a leadership staffer. The idea that you know a there is a path like yours is sure. is just un, unbelievable. Right. Let me right. if I could take you back uh, to the very first one. Um, what did you learn from Congressman Railsback? What was he like? And and you know since it was your first experience, sure. How did you learn the ropes? Moderate Republican. Uh, he voted. Uh, he was <clears throat> excuse me on the Judiciary Committee, House Judiciary Committee during uh, the Nixon uh, uh, hearings and. Uh, and he was one of three Republicans who voted to uh, articles of impeachment against President Nixon. And he and Nixon were friends. Uh, Nixon actually came to uh, his district in western Illinois and campaigned for him when, when he was running. And 
so it was a tough vote, but it was a vote of conscience. And uh, I learned a lot about the importance of, you know, having integrity, the importance of uh, our Constitution, the importance of uh, the fact that, uh, you know, you have to set politics aside when you're when you're making these judgments. The other thing I learned from Rails Back was the importance of district really giving good service to your constituents. Mm. When somebody walks in the door with a problem, whether it's social security or immigration or, or Medicare or, or, you know, you know, just trying to get a check from the government and uh, Railsback had a great reputation for helping his people. So I would say those are the lessons I learned. Uh, I learned from him. Well, so um, there was this really interesting part of your biography after, you know, in between working for Congressman Railsback and Minority Leader uh, Michael, you spent a time in the in the State House. Uh, I did f- yeah. filling the the balance of a term. Uh, can right. you talk about how that came to be and what it was like to be on the other side of the desk? Right. Well, first of all, Railsback had lost a very contentious primary uh, in in March of '82. He was in a newly drawn congressional district. A lot of the territory people didn't know who he was. A conservative Republican ran against him and beat him. So, and we have early primary in Illinois. So that was in March of, of 82. And, and, you know, I wasn't immediately out of a job, but I knew that come November, I wasn't going to be working uh, for somebody who beat Tom Rails back, my, one of my favorite people. But uh, so a, an opening came up in our district in the Western uh, it, it's called the Quad City area, Moline, East Moline, Davenport, sure. that area. Anyway, um, uh, an opening came up for a state rep job. I got the appointment uh, uh, in, in, in May 1st of, uh, of 1982. I'll never forget it, getting sworn in. Uh, went to Springfield, uh, and Republicans were actually in control of the legislature back in those days. Uh, and and uh, so Jim Thompson uh, was was the governor, uh, longest-serving Republican governor in Illinois, by the way. And so it was a great experience. I I was in a, a, a redrawn legislative district in, in 82, November of 82, lost the election, very close election. Uh, about a month after I lost that election, um, I uh, got a call from Bob Michaels' chief of staff and said, hey, we're reorganizing our office in Peoria. And I, the LaHood name was a pretty well-known name in Peoria, Lebanese uh, background, a lot of Lebanese in Peoria. So it was a it was a great opportunity for me to move back to my hometown and, and work as bo- running Bob's district office and uh, ultimately becoming his chief of staff. I learned a lot as a, you know, being a member of the, of the Illinois House. And, uh, uh, you know, frankly, it was good training for, to be a legislator. And, uh, Moving from a staff position to being a legislator, actually making laws. And uh, believe it or not, the ERA was one of the most contentious votes. I happened to vote uh, to ratify the ERA. It didn't pass because Republicans wouldn't support it. Uh, And the Speaker of the House was George Ryan, and he didn't support it. But uh, I ended up voting for that. And, uh, you know, you're able to really, uh, you know, be be a – I was a part of history at that point in Illinois. Yeah. Um, so Bob Michael came calling. He's legendary. I mean, for those of us who really, you know, love politics and follow it, he's he's so well known and re- respected House Minority Leader for, for many years. 
you wrote uh, in your book, Seeking Bipartisanship, quote, I consider myself a graduate of the Robert H. Michael School of Applied Political Arts and Sciences. His classrooms were his office, the floor of the house, its committee rooms, and the farms and towns of the 18th district. Everywhere he went, he taught his staff, by his example, what it meant to be a great public service servant. So tell me, what did you learn from him about being a great public servant? And you know, Jim, that, that quote that you just read is part of the um, eulogy that I gave at Bob's memorial service in Statuary Hall because, oh, wow. it, you know, I think it just, it, it says it all. Bob was a congressional staffer before he got elected to Congress. Wow, how about in that? 1948, coming right out of Bradley University as a graduate, he went to work for a Congressman Harold Veldy as his staffer, worked for him for eight years and succeeded him in Congress. So my point is, Bob knew as a staffer the importance of staff, that you respect staff, that you listen to your staff, that you can only learn uh, from your staff. And he, he not only knew it because he lived it, and then he taught all of us uh, that also. And uh, and. Throughout his uh, career, uh, he treated his staff like his family. Uh, he really did. You know, he would always want to know about our families and how we were doing. Uh, even in the enormous uh, job that he had of, of trying to keep Republicans corralled and, and being Republican leader, he took a great deal of interest in his staff. And uh, we, we, all, uh, we all learned a great deal about the, how to respect staff and, and, and how to how to be a good staffer from someone who was a staffer himself. Yeah. You know, uh, you also said that he taught you the difference between war and politics. Um, obviously, staffers do a lot of writing uh, and and sometimes speaking on behalf of their bosses. But the language of politics is different from the language of war. And I'm wondering if you would, wouldn't mind speaking to that uh, that lesson and, and what you think it, you know, how it applies today. Well, um, I, I do think that uh, people pay attention to the words uh, of leaders, and words words make a difference. And the way that you express those words make a difference. I've always been struck by people who've had disagreements, but have been respectful of people on the other side. And the way that you express that respect is the way that you talk to people on the other side. You don't talk in an angry way. You don't talk in a vitriolic way. You try and make your points, and but but also just you know the idea that you're respectful of somebody else's point of view, trying perhaps trying to win them over, tr- perhaps trying to convince them, uh, and and the best way to do it is to respect the idea that they're an equal, uh, that they know as much as you do, uh, and that uh, that you respect uh, their point of view. And I think with that kind of philosophy, uh, it it goes a long long way. You know, I, I, I remember uh, people that got elected in my class in, in 1994, you know, coming to coming to Congress with the idea they were going to turn the place upside down. And what I tried to persuade them uh, was the idea uh, that you, you need to be respectful of people on the other side and uh, you, you'll have your point of view, but you don't need to be mad about it and you don't need to express it in a way that's going to turn people off and... Uh, so, you know, the idea that you're conservative or you're moderate, but, you know, I, I, I love the, the quote where people say I'm, I'm a conservative, but I'm not, I'm not mad about it, you know, uh, and, and, and express, you know, express your point of view in a way that, 
is respectful. I, I, I detested so much while um, I was in the administration, the vitriol against uh, President Obama that, you know, it, it just, it, it didn't need to be. And it was more, uh, you know, the way people express themselves, it was like they were mad about the fact that he got elected. And, uh, and, and rather than having their differences, they, they did it in such a nasty, nasty way. I, I, I didn't like that at all. Well, you, um, you know, I mentioned the title of your book, Seeking Bipartisanship, but you were known for uh, bipartisanship during your entire career. Um, you organized uh, retreats for members to come together and talk right. policies, you know, both sides of the aisle to see if they could find common ground. You were a member of the Main Street uh, Republican right. Partnership, a group of right. moderates who, you know, looked to, to find ways to agree. Um you have this quote that I like. It says, Congress does not need to be, indeed it should not be, a contest to see who can shout the loudest or who can throw the most accusations at the other party. We should rationally attempt to address, discuss, and solve problems on behalf of the citizens we represent. That is a non-controversial statement. The overwhelming majority of Americans would agree with that. And yet, here we are in a, in a, in a political right. environment right. that's gotten worse, not better. Um, you know, it seems like with each passing decade and, you know, we've got, certainly we've got some Republicans today saying absolutely no to, you know, whatever President Biden, um, is, uh, proposing. We've got some Democrats who are saying absolutely do not compromise in any way just to get some Republican support. So what would you say to both sides? Um, you know, if you were to be on Capitol Hill today in right in the middle where you were? Jim, I think what I would say is follow President Biden's lead. In the first 100 days, what has he done? He spoke softly, but with a big stick. He has invited both Republicans and Democrats to the Oval Office. He's picked up the phone. He's called a lot of people uh, and talked to people both sides of the aisle. He doesn't scream at them. He doesn't shout at them. He respectfully listens to them. I, I think Biden has set an extremely strong tone for the idea that uh, we may not disagree, but I'm willing to listen to you. I'm willing to consider your point of view, and I'm willing to do it in a congenial, friendly way and and not be mad about it. And uh, my, my point is we all ought to be paying attention to President Biden right now because he's doing what other presidents have done that have led to great success. I, I really characterize Pre uh, President Biden uh, as an example of uh, t the, the best of Ronald Reagan, surrounding himself with very good people, listening to them, paying attention to them, good staff, and also a combination of Lyndon Johnson. He knows the Congress. He respects the Congress. He's willing to listen to the Congress. He's willing to pick up the phone and talk to Congress. And that kind of combination, I think, is going to hold him in good stead. It already has. And yeah. I think it'll continue to do that. Yeah. Now, and now some people look at bipartisanship and they say, well, it's not worth, you know, trading down a for, you know, on a policy for the quote, I'm using air quotes, sake of bipartisanship. And I think you are a good person to speak about the value of bipartisanship, right? It's not beyond optics. It's not just 
optically good. It is good for substantive reasons. Can you speak to that? Because I think when people do act in a bipartisan way, Jim, they, uh, they really reflect a lot of different points of view. It's not just one point of view. It's not just one philosophy. When people listen to one another on both sides of the aisle, uh, they take into consideration uh, the opinions of a lot of different people, including the fact that here you got 435 in the House, 100 in the Senate. They, they represent real people in the country. Their point of view does represent a point of view that exists in America. And so when you know President Biden, who got elected by all of the people, has his point of view, has his agenda, and seems to be carrying it out pretty well, and then calls into the Oval Office, members of Congress from West Virginia or or Montana or, you know, and, 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 and listens to them, he's also taking into consideration a lot of other Americans. And uh, what bipartisanship does, it brings a lot of different opinions together. And then, you know, you begin to make a difference. Jim, if you look back at the 240 plus rich history of America, the big things that have gotten done, whether it's civil rights, uh, whether it's voting rights, uh, have been done in a bipartisan way. It couldn't have been done without that. And I think of uh, somebody who once represented the district that I represented, Everett Dirksen. Without Everett Dirksen, Lyndon Johnson could have never passed the Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Bill. And Everett Dirksen came from an all-white community, Pekin, Illinois, which is not too far from where I'm sitting right here, right across the Illinois River all-white community. And here he was, the minority leader, but he knew that Johnson wanted to get this done. He and Johnson were friends, and boom, it it, it made a difference. And uh, I, I, I think bipartisanship brings together a lot of different ideas that get sifted out, and in the end, uh, you end up with a, a pretty good compromise. Yep. Let me take you back to when you were chief of staff for Bob Michael again, because, you know, you mentioned Everett Dirksen, who was the minority leader in the Senate, but hugely influential. When Bob Michael was minority leader, uh, President Reagan and President George H.W. Bush were in the White House. And for at least four of those years, the Senate was held in Republican hands. And having you know lived in the House minority uh, in the past, I know it can be a frustrating place. But when your party controls one or both of those other levers, it gives you you know elevated negotiating power and and, and, and greater relevance. So you were there uh, during some really important moments. Is there a legislative accomplishment? You know something that you reflect on during that time as chief of staff that you know you're really proud of the role that you played and what it led to. I, I think more than anything, Jim, I think it was the idea that during the uh, the time that Bob was leader, um, Reagan was in, in the White House, uh, and Reagan was willing to listen to Bob t- t- talking about some of the things we just talked about. He was willing to invite Democrats to come to dinner or invite Democrats to to come to the White House. And he was willing to listen to them. And I think Democrats appreciated that. Tip O'Neill was speaker. Tip O'Neill didn't like any of Reagan's policies, but he liked Reagan. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was that was back in the day that people were respectful uh, of the office. And I think of uh, some of the things that, uh, that Reagan accomplished uh, that couldn't have been accomplished without having a leader like Michael who was very respected on the Democratic side. 
Bob knew Democrats. He knew that he knew their families. He had traveled with them through the Appropriations Committee that he served on. He got to know many Democrats, and they respected him and they listened to him. And uh, so uh, I think Reagan was successful because he had a, a leader in Michael who could talk to Democrats and persuade Democrats to go down to the White House and listen to Reagan, not that they would agree, and persuade Tip O'Neill. Have dinner with Reagan. Let's, you know, let and and they formed a friendship, and uh, you know that that was very helpful to Reagan in getting his agenda passed, uh, and uh, he did some, you know, some significant things, and uh, and no one would have ever thought when Reagan was elected as a real conservative, real true Republican conservative, um, that he was going to be successful with a guy like Tip O'Neill, or that he was going to be successful with some of the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, but he was because yeah. he listened to him, he respected him, and uh, uh, he had uh, in his leader Bob Michael, who was equally respected. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I think is really an important part of being um, a a staffer who adv- who is advising other you know members of the leadership, so minority leader, speaker, etc., is being able to be on the House floor when members are there voting or debating uh, because you learn a lot about, you know, the members, how they interact with one another, who sits with who. And also it's it's sort of extended time for just chatting, which, you know, when they're not on the House floor, members are normally running one place to another or they're in a committee hearing or they're just busy wall to wall. It's the floor time that actually is can sometimes be the most relaxing uh, for them, if they're not speaking and they're just listening or in the cloakroom grabbing a bite to eat, it's really useful. Can you talk about um, you know what happens in the cloakroom or on the House floor that you got to observe um, as a staffer first and later as a member? Sure, I think I think you hit it on the head, Jim. I think it's the relationship building. Many people who come from their state legislature to Congress have a difficult time because in state legislatures, which I was in, you're actually on the floor while the votes are going on. You're sitting next to your colleagues. You're walking around. You're, you're talking to people. That doesn't exist in Congress. As you said, when, when, you're, when, when the Congress is in session there are very, and the debates are going on, there are very few people on the floor. It's not until the bells ring and people are called to a vote and they actually have to stand there next to a Democrat as a Republican or begin talking to people on the other side and, uh, and sitting with them and talking to them. Uh, this is where people really interact. This is where a member of Congress might say to another member on the other side, would you be willing to co-sponsor my bill? Here's, here's what it involves. And, you know, that kind of interaction is never really, uh, you know, seen by by the public or seen by constituents, but it happens all the time. And it's where relationships are formed. It's where friendships are formed. It's where people get their co-sponsors for their bills. It's where people learn about somebody's family uh, and really, you know, friendships, friendships really are developed. You know, you might uh, say, hey, a couple of guys, a couple of people are going out for dinner. Why don't you join us? A lot of that activity takes flo- takes place on the floor during votes, and uh, there's a lot more collegiality than is ever per- per- you know perceived on on those C-SPAN cameras or on the cable news uh, channels. Yeah, that's right. 
So Bob Michael announces his retirement in fall of 93, uh, and you throw your hat in the ring. As you mentioned, you were one of only three uh, Republicans elected that cycle in a huge cycle uh, where Republicans take back the House in 1994. You were only one of three that did not sign the contract with America. Why didn't you sign it? And what were the repercussions of not signing it? Yeah, I knew... uh Newt very well, Newt Gingrich, and I knew that Newt was going to be speaker. Uh, Newt came to my district, came to Peoria in August of uh, of 94. That was the election year. Did a huge fundraiser for me. Uh, could not have been nicer. We had a you know great turnout. And he announced at this fundraiser, we're going to have this big event in Washington in September where we're going to have all the, all the uh, members come and all the candidates come and sign the contract with America. Well, you know, when I got wind of that, I, I had listened to all of Newt's uh, pronouncements over a long period of time as a staffer, sitting in leadership meetings, listening to him pontificate about this or that. I thought the contract with America was a little bit too gimmicky for me, Jim. I, I, I wanted my contract to be with the people who were electing me. I wanted my contract to be with my constituents. And uh, Newt ran a national election. It was very successful. The contract was a big part of it. Uh, and so I, after the election and we all came to D.C., I think people looked a little askance at me for, you know, why, why did you do this? And I think the leadership uh, felt that, um, you know, uh, it was not, not a, I wasn't being a good team player. And, you know, they, they kind of took, took it out on me a little bit in the beginning. But in the end, Newt and I, uh, ended up being very good friends. And I, I what I, I love to say is I survived DeLay and Army uh, and Gingrich. Uh, I was still standing <laughs> after they left. So, <laughs> Well, uh, your experience as a staffer must have helped you, you know, throughout your career, right, as a member. So, um, you know, when you arrive, you're surrounded by a number of other members who all of, you know, your freshman class was huge. They come from all walks of life. Um but did it give you a leg up uh, having, you know, been on Capitol Hill for so long? And and if so, in what ways? It gave me a leg up in knowing that, excuse me, in knowing that I needed good staff. And and I, I took some of the staff that had worked for Bob and every staff member that was hired in our office. I personally interviewed them. I told them we were putting together a team, a group of people that were all going to work together on behalf of the 18th Congressional District. Uh, I knew the importance of having good staff. I'm not sure all of these other new members who came to Washington with the idea of turning Washington upside down really knew how important it was to have staff. I I, I aspired to, to get into some of the leadership positions in our class and didn't make it because I think people looked askance at me at, because I didn't sign the contract with America. They didn't think that maybe I was a good enough team player. So, uh, you know, I, I, I struck out on my own. I, I continued to and, and the other thing that I did, I developed a good relationship with the staff of the leadership so that they knew that they could count on me. And, and, and I knew that that was an important thing to do because I knew staff was running things. A lot of people think that the members run things. Not so. If you want to get something done, find the staffer who can help you get it done. I tell people that all the time. You know, people say, you know, I want to meet with this member, that member, talk to their staff. I just had a member of Congress call me uh, a few days ago um, about an issue. And he's, you know, he said, I, w- I want to meet with 
um, uh, Secretary Buttigieg, and I, can you help me? And I said, here's what you need to do. You need to have your chief of staff call his chief of staff, lay this whole thing out, and see where it goes from there. That's the way you'll get to Buttigieg. And I, you know, that's just the way it works, Jim. Yep. And uh, so when I came in, I, I knew having good staff and we built a good team. Almost all the people that we hired in 1995 stayed with us for the entire 14 years. Wow. My chief of staff did, my deputy chief of staff. And I'm proud of that. Yeah. Uh, and I, it's, 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 it's important. That's a real tribute to you. Um, tell me, in your mind, what makes a good staffer? Um, a good staffer is somebody that does their homework, whether it's a legislative staffer who's actually working on legislation, digging into the issue, doing the research, uh, being able to uh, then articulate it uh, to the member. Um, also, uh, being, being willing to, to work with other staff from other offices, whether they be Republican or Democratic, but whether they be from your side of the aisle or the other side. Uh, being being willing to recognize that committee staff are very important, that if your member wants to get something done, wants to introduce a bill, you got to get the committee to go along with it because ultimately they're going to be the ones that are going to hold the hearings. So I just, I, I think, uh, first of all, understanding the issue, being well-versed on the issue, doing the research on the issue, and then having the relationships to being able to sell it for your boss. Yep. Uh, really good summation of, of what it means to be a good staffer. Um, what about when you became member, were there things that you learned that you wish you knew as a staffer? You know, like if, if every staffer could trade places with their boss for a month, what would they learn that would make them even better at their jobs? Yeah, I do think, uh, part of the advantage I had is I, I knew the important committees, uh, that, were really important to be on. I mean, let's face it. The most important committee is Ways and Means, the tax committee, then appropriations, in my opinion. Now, I ended up on two committees that were great for my district, transportation and agriculture, and I served on those committees for six years. But my goal was always to get on the appropriations committee. I saw the work that Bob Michael did as an appropriator. I, When I was a staffer, I saw the work, how you could really get things done for your district being on the appropriations committee. I'm not too, too much into tax law and that sort of thing. So I didn't care about ways and means. Uh, but uh, our leadership at the time, Gingrich, Army, DeLay, that, that, that group, uh, they were trying to help the, the vulnerable members. Out. So look, at I didn't, being on transportation and agriculture was great for my district. And the people in my district thought so. So I worked hard. Uh, Bud Schuster was the chair of transportation. We put two transportation bills together, got a lot of Got a lot of road money for my my district, a lot of transit money, and agriculture. You know, the lion's share of the 18th district is, is a lot of farmers and corn and beans. So, you know, I was smart enough to know that I wasn't going to get on appropriations right away, but uh, these were good committees, and so uh, that that's uh, that's the kind of knowledge that I think a lot of you know these members that came in in my class. Their goal was to change Washington, and they thought by being a member of Congress, they could really, you know, turn things upside down. And I knew better. Uh, you know, it, it it takes a lot more to turn things upside down in D.C., and, uh, uh, you know, it takes a long time to do that. And my goal, 
And and I'm, I I put this in the book, Jim. I'm very proud of the fact that I used to say I feel like I'm the mayor of my congressional district. That I take care of roads, I take care of bridges, I take care of the farmers, I take care of people's, you know, uh, well, not not really picking up garbage and barking dogs. But the point is, you know, we were able to really uh, influence because I knew that I wasn't going to turn Washington upside down. But I might be able to be influential in my district and get some things done. Yep. Well, and and being able to communicate to your district, uh, whatever district you are in, that you are, you know, listening to them and aware of the micro issues that they're dealing and working hard to solve them is such a product of staff work in combination with the member. For as right. busy as members feel in Washington, there are 10 things, you know, 10 times the number of things that they could be doing every day in their district, right, uh, right, that they just can't get to. And so right. having staff that are out there in the community, meeting with groups, you know, sometimes yep. speaking on the members' behalf, et cetera, and representing the ethic that they've been, yeah. that comes down from the top yeah. is enormously important. Right. Jim, can I say one more thing that when I give speeches, when I talk to staff, when I talk to uh, leaders, one of the things that I really emphasize is the idea of mentoring. Part of our job in leadership positions, whether it's Congress, whether it's the Senate, uh, whether it's in the administration, is being a mentor for others, bringing other people along, because these are not lifetime jobs. And when the job is over and you turn around and you're walking out the door, is there somebody back there that you brought along that can continue uh, to do the good work that's that's been going on. And uh, this mentoring thing is really, really important, uh, really giving people an opportunity to get the experience and the know-how so that when there is an opportunity to move up, they've got it and they can move in. Yeah, and that's underappreciated, I think, by a lot of members. You know, just to be, to be honest with you, the yep. – Right. It is staff, totally. I think, mentor one another, but exactly. not, not all members look at their staff as a as a uh, as a farm system to build future right. leaders. Right. Right. Well, when I look back at my time at DOT, we put together a great team of people and and uh, the mentoring thing. You know, I've had so many people that were in really good positions, say, as they have moved on, you know, they really appreciated uh, the kind of style and the kind of manner with which we managed the department, that we respected people, we listened to people, we didn't think we knew everything because we had the title of secretary. And uh, I just uh, I just had a, an email from a woman who, who worked for us who just got a really nice appointment from the Biden administration uh, in a job that she wanted. And you know, she sent me the most wonderful email, could never have done this without without your leadership. And, uh, you know, when the deputy secretary that's in the job now at DOT, uh, Polly Trottenberg, we, we hired Polly. She worked for us for four and a half years, uh, then went on to be uh, secretary of transportation in New York City. But when she was nominated, she called me. Schumer is her uh, senator. And she said, you know, he's too busy. He's not going to be able to introduce me at the Senate Commerce Committee. Would you do that? I mean, that to me, that says it all, that she thought enough of uh, our relationship that she wanted me to introduce her. And I was obviously very pleased to do that. And it goes to my point. When you mentor people and you give people an opportunity to show their own leadership, boom, they blossom. And here now, 
Polly is the deputy secretary at DOT. That's right. One of the, I mean, one of the real joys of my time at the White House was being able to work with you and the staff at DOT. We wanted to accomplish more. We wanted a right, big service right. transportation bill. Right. And we had to play defense on, you know, FAA reauthorization, right? right. I mean, we had to do some things in kind of a crisis um, mode. But we right. did do a lot with the American Recovery Act. And and it's pretty incredible just how uh, much infrastructure, physical infrastructure was built around this country because of that. And I, I remember, and you probably do too, people were – very, very nervous when that was passed, that it was going that you know those those hundreds of millions of dollars were going to be spent in a way that embarrassed uh, the administration in any way. And so every dollar got you know examined to make sure that it was the right type of project and it got you know its advocacy, those who were advocating for it internally, it was all cost benefit and right on the on the metrics. Um, you were an enormous uh, part of that. You were really leading that effort. Um, but it's a 55,000 uh, you know, employee organization with a $70 billion budget. Did you find yourself having to stretch you know, as a leader um, of an organization like that? Absolutely. When we came into the job within 30 days, as you know, the Congress passed an $870 billion economic stimulus, of which $48 billion came to DOT, which we had to spend in two years. And uh, we could have never done it, Jim, without the enormous cooperation of the professional career staff at DOT. And I've told, I told Anthony Fox this, who was my immediate successor. I told uh, Pete Buttigieg this uh, when I had a Zoom call with him before he was confirmed. You're going to be able to count on 55,000 people saluting we want to know what your agenda is. We want to know what President Biden's agenda is. That's what they did for us when we walked in the door. We had no political appointees, as you know, for a, a long period of time. And these people stepped up. So what we did is we put together a task force of career people and we met with them every day. We wanted to make sure the money was being spent, getting out the door, spent correctly. No boondoggles, no earmarks, no sweetheart deals. And boom, within two years, we did it. And uh, it was the career staff in the first several months that helped us uh, do that. We had an abundance of blessings in that we got $48 billion, but we also had to get it right. And we were a part of the task force that Vice President Biden chaired. And that's where I really got to know Vice President Biden. We traveled the country together a lot, uh, not only handing out money, but, you know, digging shovels of dirt and so forth. And uh, um Jim, I, I'm this. This is probably the the crowning achievement uh, of of our four and a half years is that we spent the money correctly. We spent forty eight billion. We developed great relationships with governors, with mayors. We we initiated the the Tiger program, which gave money to planners and creators and innovators that had no nowhere else to get the money. We really began the Livable Sustainable Community program. Lots. I remember inaugurating the bike share program in Washington, D.C., in Denver, Colorado, with then uh, Mayor Hickenlooper, who was the mayor of Denver, uh, with Rahm Emanuel in Chicago. Those were proud, proud moments, Jim, and we couldn't have done it without the economic stimulus money. We just simply could not have done it. And uh, and so um, we, we did it the right way, and uh, I'm grateful 
to the, as you said, 55,000 employees who now 38,000 of those are, you know, are FAA employees, but the li- the lion's share of people, everybody stepped up. They really did. Well, it is the, the body of staff that exists uh, in the executive branch is large in number, but it is massive in expertise. And as a, I had been a long time congressional staffer um, and still, you know, having spent a lot of time in Washington, still underappreciated it before I got to the White House and, you know, the folks at OMB or every department, the decades and decades worth of expertise that these people bring to the job, regardless of administration, is breathtaking. It's an American treasure that the public doesn't have a lot of visibility into. Right. No question about it. And uh, you you have to really rely on those those staff for the expertise, for the knowledge. And if you're a good leader, they they will march in unison once they know what what the agenda is, once they know what what what, you know, what the priorities are. Boom. uh, They're there. And uh, so it. it, it was a, it was a great experience, and uh, every previous secretary that I talked to before I was sworn in in '09, every one of them said to me, "You're you're going to be amazed at the staff at DOT. They're great career professional people who care about transportation and who care about what President Obama's agenda is." Yep, yep, that's right. Well, uh, let me read you another sentence that you wrote uh, about uh, your time in the Obama administration. It said, the president's pledge, both as a candidate and then in office, to remake transportation policy seemed of a kind with his expansive vision and transformative aspirations in so many other fields, ranging from healthcare to diplomacy. Then, vision collided with reality. <laughs> Those two sentences could have been written today. <laughs> so, right. you know, so when you are talking, say, with Secretary Buttigieg, what advice uh, do you have for them that, you know, maybe improves upon our attempts at, at a surface transportation bill? Yeah, I think you have to keep talking to Congress. I think you have to keep persuading. I have to, you have to keep and you have to be uh uh, flexible. You have to be willing to say, okay, if this isn't going to fly, what is going to fly? And how can we, how can we make it work? How can we figure out a way to, to solve this problem? Um, I, I think you just, you, you, you keep making your point and you keep listening to the other side. You don't give up. Uh, you don't stop making the phone calls. You don't stop taking the meetings. You, you just continue to, to, to plug away. And, uh, and, and and I think, I go back to what I said before, I think Biden is setting a very good standard for that. I mean, even though he's got people that come into the Oval Office that don't agree with him, he's still willing to listen to them and to hear them out. And then, you know, ultimately, somebody's got to make a decision. I think you just keep keep the conversation going, keep the communication open, and be flexible enough to say at some point, hey, we got to move on and, and, and maybe do it do it a different way. Yep. Secretary LaHood, I could talk to you all day. 
Um, <laughs> I, I really feel like uh, there are, you know, a thousand stories and insights to gain from you. Um, and I'm just such Thank an you. admirer of you. I, I, you I, I really did enjoy our opportunities to work together. And, Absolutely. Um, and as a citizen, I'm deeply um, appreciative of your service um, in, in every role you've played, um, including all those as a staffer. Thank you, Jim. Thanks so much for including me. Great, great conversation. And I hope people that are staffers will will watch this and get the feeling that, uh, you know, someday they could be secretary of transportation or secretary of, of an important agency if they continue to work hard and, you know, really, uh, uh, you know, do, do what they do, what they have to do. And and maybe listen to a little advice from you and I. <laughs> well, definitely you on that front. Yeah. Secretary LaHood, thank you again. Thank you, Jim. Good to be with you. Remember, everyone, we are still accepting submissions on our staffer hotline, which you can reach by calling 888-416-2132. We have had a great response to the hotline, and we've already made a couple shows out of it. Keep those stories coming. And remember, they can be about anything that you found memorable, meaningful, funny about your experience as a staffer. They will be anonymous, so you can share literally anything. The length of the recording goes about four minutes. If you get cut off, just call back in and finish your story. Again, that number is 888-416-2132. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.